All right, so we are going to be reading through a lot of scripture um, today and talking a little bit about uh, about Shavuot, and um, we did, have not done any kind of teaching or anything before today um, on Shavuot, so this will kind of be a, a catch-up and a, uh, um, a deal, and I know that for many of you, um, you have now celebrated Shavuot for the last couple of years. Um, for some of you, this is maybe your first time. For some of you, it may be your 20th time or your 40, 50th time, whatever, whatever it may be. But we, um, we want to read the passages of Shavuot uh, that the scripture, the Torah talks about. Um, and we want to talk about some connections and some things that's important to remember about this day and why this day is so important. Um, Shavuot is one of a few days that is uh, a one-day festival, right? So... Uh, it's one of those days where if you don't know it's coming, you're going to miss it. And if, you, if, you, if you're not focused on it, it'll come and it'll pass you by super quick. And you go like, oh, well, I guess I missed it. Or for some people, um, we, you know, in, in the keeping of the Torah and celebrating the feast, we, we really can treat it a lot like we used to treat Christmas and Easter in a good way. Um, you know, like, you might be in church every Sunday, might not, but you're definitely going to be there for Christmas and Easter, right? That's, those are the sacred time. Those are the hot spots, I like to call them, right, throughout the year. And in the Torah, we can have a tendency to treat certain of the festivals the same way, right? So we have, um, we, we have kind of the big two or three, right, which are Passover. Everybody wants to get together for Passover, right? For our Passover Seder, we have like 80, 100 people. Everybody wants to celebrate Passover. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, some do, some don't, not a big deal, whatever. And then Shavuot, for most people, is kind of a minor feast. It's not. I'm just saying that's what people, it's kind of a minor feast. Like, eh, if we don't do it, it's okay. And then we have Yom Teruah. It's kind of another like, eh, Yom Kippur. Which for a lot of, a lot of um, Christians who are pursuing the Torah, a lot of us, Hebrew, trying to be, you know, in the, more the Hebrew mindset, Yom Kippur is an odd one because Yom Kippur is all about forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation and atonement before God. And we have this hang up of like, yeah, but we're already forgiven and we're already restored and we're already reconciled to God. So Yom Kippur is really not for us. And that's a grave mistake because it's even more important for us to celebrate Yom Kippur now than it ever was for the Israelites. And I'll tell you why. Because in the, in the days of the Israelites, in the day of Israel, in the temples and the tabernacles, Yom Kippur was mostly about cleaning the building, right? We've talked about this before. It was about washing the building clean and, and cleaning God's house, cleaning God's sacred space. And that was every year so that the, the Shekinah, the, the presence of God, would continue to dwell among the people of Israel. So that was really important. But today, if we believe our Bible, we believe the New Testament, we believe Yeshua, today we are the building. And the presence of God, the Shekinah, we believe, lives in us. And let me ask you this. Since you woke up this morning, have you trespassed God's holiness? Maybe not, 
but maybe so. (laughs) Since yesterday, since the day before yesterday, since last week, since last Yom Kippur. (laughs) So it's even more important for us today as carriers of the presence of God, if we believe that's what we are, as image bearers and carriers of the presence of God, it's actually more important for us today to come to, the, to Hashem during the time of Yom Kippur and to pour out our hearts and to, to receive that forgiveness. Do we have forgiveness? Yes. As I've said before, just like when your kids mess up, do you ever entertain the thought of not forgiving your kids? Like, nope, I'm just not going to do it. Your six-year-old, seven-year-old, 10-year-old, 15-year-old messes up. We want to forgive as parents. That's our, we want to get to a place where we can forgive. And that's the heart of God. Forgiveness is a given, but should not be taken for granted. We should still come and approach and ask. And so Yom Kippur seems to some like a minor thing because we already have forgiveness, but it indeed is very, very important. And then the other big one, of course, is Sukkot, which we're talking about, right? So we have, in the Jewish world, you have, Pesach and Yom Kippur, that are the two highlights. Non-religious Jews um, don't go to synagogue usually during the year, except for uh, Pesach in their homes with their families and Yom Kippur. And in a similar way, those of us who are pursuing the Torah, Hebrew roots, Messianic, whatever you want to call us, most of the gathering is around Passover and Sukkot. And so... I know I'm preaching to the choir a little bit, but I want, I want to thank you and I want to honor you and appreciate you for understanding the importance of this day and for being together. Now, we have family today that are traveling and we have family that are you know, involved in other things, illness and different things, um, and this is certainly not a critique on them. I just uh, want to make sure that we, we do understand the importance of uh, Shavuot. So, this day is in some ways, a day on its own. But in, in reality, Shavuot is a part of Passover. And I don't know if some of you made that connection, but Passover is the time of redemption, right? It's the time of rescue. It's the time when, when Hashem comes and rescues a people that cannot rescue themselves. And we love Passover, Pesach, and we we enjoy that time. But let me ask you, what good is a rescue without a rebuilding and a direction? What good is, you know, we have these statistics, a couple of which are very, very sad. We know that the recidivism rate of people who go to prison, on average across all spectrums, is high. Somebody gets involved in a life of crime, bad decisions, whatever, they go to prison. The majority of people, especially who commit violent crimes, come out of jail and go back into crime. Recidivism. It's a sad statistic. People have been delivered, let go, freed from prison... And yet they go back to what they know. They go back to what's easy. They go back to what's comfortable, what's familiar. There's no new direction. There's no rebuilding towards a new future. And I would dare say there's no hope for anything different. Another 
troubling, I don't know about statistic, but phenomenon is when active duty military, and we have active duty military here, so you guys can talk about this better than I can, but you hear stories all the time about how hard it is for active duty military to find civilian jobs whenever they transition, when they retire and get out of the military. And this, this idea, not that the military is bondage, which I don't know what you guys might think, but that's, that's not for me to say. But this, this idea of transitioning from one sta- status in life to a different status, transitions are good. Moving from season to season is good. Let's talk about another experience that we have. How many of you in here have been empty nesters before, right? You've had kids grown and gone. You transition. I'm not saying having kids is a bondage either, but it's a transitionary time from one period of time, one season to another, right? Again, I'll let you decide that yourselves. Um, it's a transition period of time from one time, and transition can be hard without direction, right? We still have a long way before we're empty nesters, but I know from... From, from just, you know, friends and talking to folks and being around people and, and my own parents, that when your home is full of life and full of activity and schedule and, and you complain about it as a parent, right? We've got to run them to soccer. We've got to run them to this. We've got to run them to that. and got to do this. and need money for this. And we, and we complain as parents about how kids cost so much and they keep us busy and they blah, blah, blah and whatever. And we don't have any time and yada, yada, yada and all that stuff. And then one day they're gone. And all of a sudden, you're not spending all that money. You're not running the roads all the time. You're not busy, busy, go, go everywhere. But also, the house is really quiet. And the toys that you tripped over at one point that you griped about, now you wish you could trip over them again. And this transitionary time, these, these times of transition are always so, so so important that we handle them correctly and that we have what we need to handle them correctly. So as slaves in Egypt, the children of Israel get delivered. Woo! Everybody's stoked. They get delivered with mighty plagues and miracles and the hand of God moves mightily and they, they walk through, uh, uh, through the Red Sea on dry ground as a sign of mikvah and a sign of washing and cleansing. And they come out on the other side and God destroys their enemies and they walk into the desert. <laughs> this, is a, this is a process that God uses over and over and over in all human life. And yet it's not one that we ever expect, right? When we, when we are thinking about and looking at transition and when we are praying for God to bring us into a new season or we're expecting a new season in our lives, we expect the old to be gone and everything to be new. And it to just be, woo, new season. Let's get going. And yet that's not the way that God works. God, may, God will always transition us. God is faithful to move us from place to place, glory to glory, line upon line, precept upon precept. He is faithful to grow us as we are faithful to him. But with every new transition, with every new season, with every new deliverance from an old time and rebirth into a new time, there's going to be a desert. There's going to be a wilderness. If you're changing jobs and changing careers, it's exciting and it's fun. 
and it, it, it provokes you to, to you know, want to learn and want to grow. And yet you get to that new position, that new job, and there's always going to be a little bit of a wilderness. There's always going to be this empty space where you're not sure what's going on, where you're kind of lost, where things don't feel right and it's not comfortable. And this place where you have to learn how to be in the new place that you are. Because the truth of the matter is, we say it all the time, God took Israel out of Egypt. But then God had the maybe harder task of taking Egypt out of Israel, right? And what we can't do and what sometimes torpedoes the new season that God brings us into is that we want to be in a new season, but we want to be the way we were in the old season in the new season. And life doesn't work that way. You can't put new wine or old wine and new wineskins. What is, how does that go? Uh, new wine and old wineskins. Thank you. And what, so what happens when you put new wine and old wineskins is that it breaks the skins. And, and if we just want to be the same people we've been, but we just want things around us to change and call that a new season, then we are going to spoil the new season. Does that make sense? So we have this, this phenomenon that is an ancient thing that happened with Egypt and Israel, but it's applicable today. And what we have to have for our new seasons, our new transitions, our rebirth, our restoration, our redemption, what we have to have is a different set of expectations and a different way of understanding life and where we are. So let's get going and let's read through these, these passages we're going to start in the book of Exodus, and uh, there's, a, there's a bunch. Um, I don't have the chapter and verse up there. If you want to read along, Kyle, what is that chapter and verse? 19, yeah. Exodus 19, verse 1, if you want to read along, it's also on the, the screen. It says, in the third month after B'nai Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, that same day they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. They traveled from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp in the wilderness. Israel camped there right in front of the mountain. Moshe went up to God, and Adonai called to him from the mountain, saying, Say this to the house of Yaakov and tell B'nai Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you listen closely to my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my own treasure from among all people, for all the earth is mine. So when we read this, I want you to picture this, when we draw the circles, right, and we talk about the radio kadusha, the radio holiness, all the earth is Hashem's. Let's not get it twisted. All the earth, meaning all people as well, are God's. They belong to God. They were created by God in His image for his image bearing, right? However, God has this one people that is going to be responsible for carrying out his mitzvot, his commandments. Verse 6, so as for you, you will be to me a kingdom of Kohanim, of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you are to speak to B'nai Israel. I know this doesn't need to be said in this setting, but I want to say it anyway.
I want to make sure that we are pushing against dismantling and, and knocking the knees out from under any type of replacement theology that may be trying to rear its head in our lives and in, and in our fellowship. All of creation is, belongs to Hashem. All people and all nations. If we, if we believe Genesis 1, not as a science book, but as a, a poetic understanding, a poetic narrative of how God is the creator, then we understand that God created all people. All people are his, have his fingerprint in some way or another. You may have this side. I may have this side. Some people may have this part. We all have a part of God's fingerprint on our lives. We are all his image bearers. Yes, even the criminals and even the, the, the people that we deem as evil, they were all created in God's image. Wrestle with that. I don't know. And yet, God chose a representative few to reveal himself to, to give his Torah to, to give his covenant to, to safeguard and to keep who God is. Now, we've talked about this before, but God defines his people, right? God defines his people by speaking to them by leading them, by giving them his word. God teaches his people how to look, how they're supposed to look. But in a lot of ways also, the people define God. What do I mean by that? Well, have you ever seen God? I say, have you ever heard God? And many people claim to hear God a lot. I don't know how much we actually hear God, like I don't know that God is giving a running commentary on life. To some people, maybe, that's what they claim, I don't know. Have you ever smelled God? Some people, again, would claim yes. <laughs> Getting in the charismatic waters here. Um, but all these, these things, so how do we know what God is like and how do we know who God is? Well, we have his word, right? Great. How clear is the Bible always about who God is and how God deals with people? How clear is it? Like mud, right? Well, what do you mean? Well, sometimes God says, like, I'm going to curse every generation because of the sins of the fathers. And then sometimes the Bible says, no, 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 it doesn't work like that at all. I'm looking at you, Ezekiel. In one chapter... He says, no, the father, if he's righteous, will be blessed. If the son then is evil, he will be cursed. If his son then turns to righteousness, he will be blessed. Every generation is responsible. So which one is it? Right? And, and I'm not bringing that up because I'm going to solve the, solve the issue this morning. I'm just saying that we, we have his word and we think, well, like, the, the God's word is his answer book. I'm going to step on some toes, but I'm going to wait a little bit before I do that. So then, what, how, what does the word look like? What does God look like through his word? The point I'm trying to get is that it comes down to the fact that we need people, you and us, humans, who are his image bearers, who actually live out his word so that we know what God looks like. Does that make sense? We say God is kind, and I love the Amidah. It talks about God's kindness so much. 
We know that God is kind. That's wonderful. What does godly kindness look like if we're not kind to one another? You see what I mean? So yes, God defines the people, but the people in turn define what God looks like to each other. Israel is the one that was given that job in the beginning, right? Israel, the Jewish people were given that job to safeguard and protect the things that help us to understand what God, who God is and what God looks like. Israel is still that people. And I don't want any of us to get it twisted. Yes, we have salvation and redemption through Yeshua. Yes, we are a part of God's family through Yeshua, through the faithfulness of God, through the redemption of the blood and the cross and all of those beautiful things. We are a part of God's family. But we're not all the older brother. We're not all the Bechor, the firstborn. However, we have a lot of arrogance. We have a lot of, well, I've got the Spirit, and I've been reading the Bible for six months, and so I'm going to come in and tell everybody how it works. And that's just not how we treat the Jews. That's how we, you ever, you ever in church and son, a new believer, you get a new believer, and somebody gets saved and baptized, and they're all excited, and all of a sudden they want to teach Sunday school, they want to be, you know, whatever, like, like, dude, you've been, reading the, you've been reading the Bible for two weeks. Pump the brakes. You don't even know where you are in this whole thing yet, right? Y'all had those experiences? Now, how do you think the Jewish people feel whenever some, I'm going to say this, kunas from South Louisiana that grew up on shrimp and crawfish all of a sudden finds the Torah? And after reading the Torah for about six weeks, now all of a sudden we want to correct all the stuff the Jews are doing wrong. Hey, pal, <laughs> sit over there. You know, those new believers, those new, I dealt with it in youth ministry. Kids would get saved, and all of a sudden, man, they wanted, let me get up there and talk about what, who God is. I'm like, oh, hang on. You were literally smoking dope in the church parking lot last week. You're not getting up and preaching this week. Sorry, buddy. Like, sit, sit over here, be involved, listen, learn, Right? But see, we don't want to do that in the Hebrew Roots Messianic community. We want to come to the Torah and we want to go, well, the rabbis and the Jews are keeping the Torah wrong. I read it in the English. Oh boy. Hey, and I can just, you know, the Ju- sit, sit down. <laughs> sit down, be quiet, listen, learn, speak less, listen more, Right? The Jewish people are still the protectors. They're still the guardians of the Torah. They're still the guardians of the covenant. We are wet behind the ears. Yes, we have a Messiah. Yes, we have the Spirit. All those, yes, all those things are true. And yet what we don't have is the experience with working with the Torah like the Jewish people have. Right? So we need to be careful. Okay, that was a huge rabbit trail. Sorry. I just, just have to address that. All right. So, verse 7. So, Moshe uh, went, called for the elders of the people, and put before them all these words that Adonai had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, Everything that Adonai has spoken, we will do. Then Moshe reported the words of the people to Adonai. 
This is the pivotal moment in history. Not just in Israel's history, but in the history of mankind. This is the, this is the moment. Those, that one little verse, those few little words that we just read. This is the moment when human history changes. We are so, and it's a blessing, but we are so used to and so comfortable with faith and God and the Bible, the word of God. We're so comfortable because most of us have had it around us our entire lives. Most of us have Bibles at home that we lost, that we forgot we had, that we don't even remember that we have. The word of God and a relationship with God and religion and stuff is so comfortable for us because we've been exposed to it for so long. And that's a wonderful thing. However, what we don't realize or have trouble realizing is that not everybody's world looks like ours. And the world today, the world today, there's, there's very, it's very hard to find a place in the world today that's not heard of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's hard to find a place in the world today that's not heard of Jesus. It's hard to find those places. But the world wasn't always like that. We didn't always have the internets, right? We didn't always have the Google and all the stuff. We didn't always have all that stuff. And there was a time in world history where if you, if we lived in Rosepine and some of you guys lived in Deritter, we, there's a good chance we might have separate gods altogether. Separate religious practices, separate language, just from living a few miles from each other. It, I, it's interesting, Heather and I are really old souls in a lot of ways. So when we have free time, which is not often when we have free time, sometimes we just go drive, back roads. We just like to ride, ride around. And one thing I notice all the time is that there's churches everywhere. Not just in Deritter and Borgore Parish. We go on vacation and we do the same thing. Instead of going to the tourist spots, we just go drive around. We find whatever little local pig trails there are and just, you know, go explore. And everywhere we seem to go, there's churches everywhere. I know Deritter gets a bad rap because we have way too many churches. But this is a phenomenon everywhere. And as I think about it and as I wonder why, these churches, most of them were built in a time where you didn't have cars. Most, most poor farmers had one horse and that was your work horse. You didn't ride it around. You saved him or her in the barn until you needed them to plow. So each community had a church because you had to get walking distance. This is a little bit of the flavor of, of what I'm talking about. The fact that God called a people out of Egypt and spoke a few words and says, this is what I want you to do and who I want you to be. And is, this is the proposal as the sages talk about it. This is God proposing to Israel. And Israel agrees and says, everything that you say, we will do. Now, had they heard everything God would ask? Not even close. They hadn't even gotten a sliver of what God would ask them to do. But they agreed beforehand. They counted the cost and they said, everything you say we will do. This is the, like I said, the pivotal moment in history. Where now, the the, uh, formation of a nation 
from the patriarchs to the nation, now God introduces a new type of society into the world. We had Abraham, we had Yitzhak, we had Yaakov, we had people, we had a community growing, but this is a new society, a new way of doing society that is introduced in the world. Verse 9, Adonai said to Moshe, I'm about to come to you in a thick cloud so the people will hear when I speak to you and believe you forever. Then Moshe told the words of the people to Adonai. Adonai said to Moses, go to the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothing. Be ready for the third day for on the third day Adonai will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You are to set boundaries for the people all around saying be very careful not to go up onto the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain will surely be put to death. Not a hand is to touch it but he will surely be stoned or shot through. Whether it is an animal or man, it will not live. When the shofar sounds, they may come up to the mountain. When Moshe went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated them, and then they washed their clothing, he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not draw near your wives. In the morning on the third day, there was thundering and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and the blast of an exceedingly loud shofar, and all the people trembled. I love this picture. The people are not at the mountain yet. They're still a little ways off. And the sound of the shofar was so loud that they trembled. Some archaeologists and scholars think they were up to a mile away from the mountain at this point. And whatever this sound was, this shofar, was so loud that it caused them to tremble that far away from the mountain. Verse 17, then Moshe brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the lowest part of the mountain. Now the entire Mount Sinai was in smoke, because Adonai had descended upon it in fire. The smoke ascended like the smoke of the furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. This is the first earthquake recorded in Scripture. Did you know that there's three earthquakes recorded in Scripture? The three earthquakes recorded in Scripture are... This one, I'm sorry, four. This one, whenever God's presence descends on Mount Sinai, this is the first earthquake. The second earthquake is whenever God's presence comes into the tabernacle. The Shekinah comes and dwells in the earth, in the tabernacle is the second one. The third one is under King Uzziah. When King Uzziah goes in to offer incense in the temple, he's not authorized to because he's not a Kohen. He goes in and the presence of God leaves the earth from the, from the temple. So the first earthquake, God's presence sits on Mount Sinai, the earthquakes. Second earthquake, God's presence comes and actually fills the tabernacle. Third earthquake, God's presence leaves the earth after Uzziah. Do you know what the last one is? When the presence of God, Shekinah, returns with the Messiah at the end of days. Pretty cool. All right. Um, verse 19. So the mountain crate quickly, the people are trembling, a lot of trembling going on. Verse 19. Then the shofar, sound of the shofar grew louder and louder. Moshe spoke and God answered him. With a thunderous sound. Then Adonai came down onto Mount Sinai, the top of the mountain. Adonai called to Moses to the top of the mountain, so Moshe went up. By the way, just as an aside, can you imagine being the people? You're already scared to death because this 
Rocky Mountain is on fire. Smoke, thunder, lightning. You hear this train a coming. Shofar, horns, never mind. Um, Sorry. You hear this sound that's so loud that it's causing you to tremble, and God says, oh, come closer. And, and so you approach closer, and he's already warned you that anybody that touches the mountain is going to be shot or stoned because this is Sinai. This is the place where the burning bush was earlier that Moshe ran into, right? This is a holy place. And so this teaches us a really important lesson. And something that I've been really guilty of because I tend to be a worshiper and tend to be more emotional in the way I connect with God. Um, Even the songs that we sing, I kind of struggle with nowadays. Because this idea that like, well, I can just jump up in daddy God's lap and like he can just hold me. And and the the thing about that, that Israel teaches us that God married Israel at Mount Sinai. Israel became God's, God's loyal wife, or ho- what would hope to be loyal wife. And even in that intimate relationship, in that intimate setting, God said, don't come too close or you'll die. So it's this weird, it's this weird um, paradox, right? It's this weird paradox where God marries Israel. He rescues them. He he betrothes himself to them. He loves them. He delivers them. All of these beautiful, intimate, relational kind of pictures. God does all these things with Israel. But when it comes time for God to descend upon the mountain, he says, don't come too close or you're going to die. What we've done typically in Christianity is we've gotten really good at living in the world of God loves us. He protects us. He, he, he wants to, to, you know, to be faithful to us and to be, dwell in our lives. And we've gotten really good at practicing that part. We haven't gotten so good at God is still holy. And there are some places that you and I can't go. Well, I'm just going to go boldly into the throne room. That's fine. Go boldly into the throne room and you'll die. I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. Well, when the temple's rebuilt, I'm just going to, I can't wait to go worship in the temple. No. Not, it's, and we don't like that. We don't like that there are parts of God and parts of the, the, the whole God thing that we are not allowed to be privy to. How dare we? Who do we think we are? This is God's betrothed nation. From all nations, this is God's betrothed, his, the nation that he chose. And he still says, I love you. You're, my, you're my, my people. You're the apple of my eye. But yeah, you, yeah, comes, yeah. <laughs> well, I might not either now, even though I love it. The, the, we, we don't do well with the idea, you know, we don't, we don't like the fact that, um, and I've said this before, we don't like it when I say or other people say that, um, you know, things about like the, the Jewish people are closer to God. <gasps> what? Sorry. We, but we don't like that. We don't like the idea that, that 
in, in the biblical structure of things, a Jewish person has every right to walk in and tell us, you're not doing that right, you should stop. We don't like that. Well, I have freedom in Christ. Like, and then we throw out all these phrases and, ver- and all this stuff that doesn't really mean anything. We just don't like the fact that we can be reined in. We don't like the fact that we need to be taught. We don't like the fact that there's somebody that knows more than us that can tell us what to do. People really get bent out of shape when we talk about if there's a third temple, when there's a whatever, however you think about that. People go like, wow, we're going to be able to go for Passover. Probably not. Because there's, there's, there's no place in the temple complex for the nations. Now, unless that changes with the third temple, I don't know. But if it's based off of the model, only the nation of Israel goes into the temple or in around the temple. And for, for a Christian mind to think that they would be denied access to the presence of God by a Jewish person is unfathomable. You want to see people get absolutely nutty crazy? Keep me from the presence of God. You know, it just is insane. We don't think like that. We don't think that way. And yet, even Israel, who is betrothed to God on this day, God says, come here and no further. There's something for us to learn in that. There, there's something there that, that, we're, that we're not getting. And yet, these people who are scared to death Standing at this mountain, looking it on fire, hearing the shofar, thunder, lightning, all these things. It says, Moses went up. Now, the people are going to struggle with Moses' leadership off and on. They're going to say, like, we should have died in Egypt. Who are you to be leading us? Right? You have priests that revolt. You have all this kind of stuff. How quickly they forget how scared they were standing there watching all the stuff that was going on the mountain, and then all of a sudden, their leader, Moses, just walks up into it. I mean, if Moses needed any more validation that he was the man of God for Israel in that season, I would think that's it, you know? And so it says that in verse, uh, what verse are we in? Uh, Wilderness of Sinai. 20. Then Adonai came down on the Mount Sinai, the top of the mountain, and called Moses up. There we go. In verse 21, then Adonai said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to see Adonai and many of them die. See this weird thing. Even the Koinim who came near to Adonai must consecrate themselves so that Adonai must not break out against them. Even the priest. So Moshe, verse 23, said to Adonai, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you are the one who warned us saying, set boundaries around the mountain and consecrate it. Then Adonai said to him, go down. There's a lot of trekking up and down this mountain. You are to come back up, you and Aaron with you, and do not let the Kohanim and the people break through to come up to Adonai, or he will break out against them. So Moshe went down and uh, down to the people and told them. Then God spoke, verse, uh, chapter 20, spoke all these words saying, I am Adonai your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. And we've talked about this before. There's three different ways to count the Ten Commandments. There's a a Catholic way, there's a Protestant way, and there's a Jewish way. And those are the three ways. Uh, Someone had printed it out for me before. Three different columns with different ways that that the commandments are counted. Um, I have never, before I started understanding more about Judaism and learning the Torah... 
I never even thought of I am Adonai, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt as the first commandment. But these are not, in the technical sense, these are not the ten commandments. They are the ten words, or the ten matters, is what I like to call them. They are the ten matters. The majority of them are do things, or don't do things, commandments, positive and negative commandments. However, they are ten matters. These are the ten foundational principles that God is going to deal with the, the people of Israel about, right? And it makes sense that the first matter is making sure who's in charge, right? And as we said before, if, if you don't believe that God is your deliverer and the one who rescues you and the one who has brought you to this place, then the other nine matters don't matter. If you don't have the first one right, the other nine don't matter. Number two in verse three, you shall have no other gods before me, little g, which opens up a whole discussion about are there other gods? Or is this just talking to the Israelite community that thought there were other gods? It's a whole interesting conversation, but we'll move on. Verse four, do not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven, above or on the earth, below or in the water, under the earth. Do not bow down to them. Do not let anyone make you serve them. For I, Adonai, your God, am a jealous God, bringing the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to the thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my mitzvot. By the way, when we talk about love here, remember that love is loyalty, okay? Verse 7, you must not take the name of Adonai, your God, in vain, for Adonai will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. Now, let me plug a really great book. It's at home. I don't have a copy here. Um, called Bearing God's Image by Carmen Imes, Dr. Carmen Imes. Most of you have it because I've talked about it before. Where she takes a deep dive into taking God's name in vain. Which for most of us usually means saying a curse word. Right? Right? To take something in vain <clears throat> means to, to hold it lightly, to not treat it with the due respect, right? During Birkat Kohanim, when the nation is blessed, what happens when the nation is blessed by Aaron the Kohen? He places what? God's name on the children of Israel, Right? It's a cool thing because there's one other person that literally wears God's name in the nation of Israel. Do you know who that is? It's the Kohen Gadol. He wears it on the what they call the crown. He wears, it says, uh, Kadosh, Kadosh Ladonai, yud holy to God, or to yud He actually wears the name of God as a crown. And then when he says the Birkat Kohanim, he places the name of God on the children, right? So they are wearing God's name around. They are called by his name. And that means that, you know, they, sh- they represent him. They should look like him. They should act like him. We talked about before, like, you, as a kid, if you, if you did something dumb and you embarrassed 
your parents in the community, you're, you're soiling their name, right? You're sullying their name. Why? Because you wear their name, because you're, you represent them. You're one of them. And this thing about God and, and taking his name in vain is part of this counting the cost. If you believe number one and you've done number two, number three, number four, taking his name in vain means realizing all the responsibility that you have, that we have as his people. And when I want to pop off and lose my, lose my head whenever somebody won't get out of the left-hand lane and I'm trying to pass, I've got to remember, I've got to force myself to remember, and I'm not good at it, that I represent the king of heaven. When, the, when there's a situation that I don't like and I don't have to deal with it and I'm frustrated or whatever, or if I'm at home with my kids and, or, or with Heather or whatever, I've always got to remember and remind myself that I wear the name of the king of heaven. And that is not something I can take vainly. It's a heavy thing. I shouldn't treat it as light and as not important. The name of God, as we've talked about before, embodies not only the four letters of his name, but it embodies his character, his authority, his personality, his reputation. That gets really important when we get to the book of Acts. And there's a tie between this commandment and the book of Acts that we'll get to before we're done. Verse number 8, remember Yom Shabbat, Sabbath day, to keep it holy. You are to work six days and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Shabbat to Adonai your God. In it you shall not do any work, not you and your son, your daughter, your male, your female, your male servant, your female servant, your cattle, nor the outsider that was, that was within your gates. I love the way this says this. Work six days and do all your work. <laughs> now, some of us have too much work to do in six days. Some of us, you know, we couldn't get to it if we did it all. But I love the, again, we focus on the seventh day, the part of the commandment. We don't focus enough on the six days part of the commandment. It actually says twice, work six days and do all your work. Verse 11, for in six days, Adonai made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh. Thus Adonai blessed Yom HaShabbat, the Sabbath day, and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that your days may be long on the land which Adonai, your God, has given you. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Do not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his maidservant, manservant, ox, donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Verse 18, all the people witnessed the thundering and the lightning and the sound of the shofar and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood far off. So they said to Moses, here's the beginning of the prophetic tradition you ready they said to moses you speak to us and we will listen but do not let god speak to us or we will die according to rabbi jonathan Sachs, this is the beginning of prophetic tradition this is where it started because god's intention was always to speak directly to his people with no interface god speaking to the people that was the intention. He told Moses, hey, I'm going to come down in a cloud and speak with you so that the people can hear me, right? The people chose and said, time out. You go talk to God. 
and then come down and tell us what he said. But we, if we listen to him directly, we're going to die. And so it says, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come to test you so that you may... Uh, Fear may be in you so that you do not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew back, drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Then Adonai said to Moses, say this to Bnei Israel, you yourselves have seen that I spoke to you from heaven. Do not make gods of silver alongside me and do not make gods of gold for yourself. You are to make an altar of earth for me and there you will sacrifice your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and your cattle. In every place I cause my name to be mentioned, I will come to you and bless you. My name to be mentioned or remembered. When you make for me an altar of stones, do not build it from cut stone or use a tool on it. You will have profaned it. Nor will you go up to my altar on steps so that your nakedness would not be uncovered while on it. So, there we have the, the day of Shavuot and the giving of the, the commandments. Now, I started by asking the question, what good is rescuing? What good is redemption? If there is no direction afterwards, if there's no rebuilding, if there's no teaching, if there's no nothing. So what we, what we say is that God took Israel out of Egypt, but God had to take Israel, Egypt out of Israel. This is where that begins. We've talked about adoption before. And I know that some of you have been involved in adoption. So again, this is another area where you can speak to this much better than I can, but I have this thing about adoption that I've thought about for a long time. And let's just say you have a, a young person, a child, a kid, who is, through no fault of their own, making some bad decisions. Their parents have left them. They're in foster care. They're out on the street. They're whatever. And a, a stable family mom and dad, maybe some other kids, stable home, healthy home, adopts that child. Once the paperwork is signed, the fees are paid, everything is done, that child is legally a part of that new family. Legally. That means that they enjoy all of the legal protections, all of the benefits that comes with having that family's last name. Right. But that's just one level of adoption. For that kid, they may be legally adopted. They may even have have taken the new family's last name. However, They do not enjoy the fullness of being a part of that family until they start obeying the rules of the house and learning the culture of that home. Does that make sense? This is where Israel is in the wilderness. God has rescued them and delivered them. But they're Egyptian by all accounts. They're... they're they don't under, I mean, they know the stories of their heritage. They know Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. They know Yosef, and they know why they're there. But they don't have a, they don't have a, a real nationality, an identity as the people of God. They're slaves. 
They have no value except what Pharaoh gives to them. So when they come out, they've been, let's talk about adopted. They've been adopted legally they're God. When they said everything you say we will do, they're God's legally, bang, they're, they're done. They're, they're, that, that is a binding covenant, right? They agreed. But what is God going to do next? He's going to give them instructions and it's God's way of saying, okay, if you're going to live in my house, you're going to have to live by my rules, right? Israel, in my opinion, never really gets its communal head around what it means to be the people of God in the sense that they, they never really move into the house and really understand what God is trying to teach him. There are some high points. There are definitely some low points. Eventually they get exiled and, and the whole thing turns upside down. What tragedy is it when a child is adopted into a new home that is healthy and full of love and joy and, and, and peace and order? What tragedy is it when that child is rescued from a destructive lifestyle or destructive situation and where's the last name of the new family and is legally theirs, legally protected as theirs, but doesn't submit to the culture of the family and the culture of the house. They never change inside. They never become a part of that family truly. There's always the, well, this is not my real family. Even though you wear the name, even though you're legally bound to this family, it can still be like two different families living in one household. And I think that's the struggle that we see with Israel consistently is that they are legally gods, they marry, they're bound to him, and yet they always have this tendency to want other gods, to want idols, to want to go chase after these other things. It's all that, it's all that old family stuff. It's all that Egypt stuff that they continue to deal with because they got the legal certificate, but they kind of never really moved in full force. I hope that makes sense. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. We had some other passages, but we're going to finish up. Acts chapter 2. So you, you can't have a Passover without a Shavuot. They are bookends of the same thing. And what in the years, in the years that follow, as we continue to keep these, celebrate these feasts and learn, what I want us to cultivate is this understanding that Passover is one bookmark, Shavuot is another bookmark. And I know many of you have counted the Omer uh, this whole time, but the you can't have a you can't have a Shavuot without a Passover. And this whole time of unleavened bread and counting the Omer is a bridge between redemption and instruction. Freeing and being directed on how to live now as a new person in a new season. So let's go to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Shavuot, if your Bible says Pentecost, scratch that out and put Shavuot. No, um, j- Just because of the link. Many people don't understand that Pentecost is a thing that had been happening for thousands of years because it's not called Pentecost. 
Shavuot had fully come. They were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And as you read this, you will start to understand and go like, wait, that sounds familiar, like we just read in Exodus. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. By the way, they were likely near the temple complex, which is on top of Mount Zion. So they were in an upper room on top of a mountain. Right? They were in an upper room on the mountain of, of, of uh, uh, Zion, the Har- Harabiah, the Temple Mount, right? They're in an upper room on the Temple Mount. That's the cleanest way to say it, by the way, okay? And they were there because they had been commanded by the Messiah to go and wait, to go and tarry until he sent the Comforter. What were they doing while they were waiting, what are they do? What season are they in? Passover to Shavuot. What season are they in? They're counting the Omer. They're not waiting, like sitting around looking at each other, twiddling their thumbs. They are counting the Omer, which is something that every Jewish family was doing during this point. In our Gospels, it says Yeshua says, "Go and wait." What he probably said was, go and count the Omer and wait. Counting the Omer is understood. It's implied that this is what would have been happening. They were counting the Omer, and there came, verse 2, I'm sorry, there came a, a sound from heaven like a mushing, rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And tongues like fire spread out and appeared to them and settled on each one of them. So the sound like a rushing mighty wind, it's like a thunderstorm, like a, like a windstorm, which is exactly what they saw in Shavuot. And tongues like fire spreading out and settled on each one of them. This is probably closer, instead of fire, like little candle-like flames of fire, it's probably closer to something like what we saw on the mountain at Shavuot, what else did they see? What comes from in a thunderstorm? Lightning. Probably more like lightning than flames of fire. And they were filled with Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Ruach enabled them to speak out. Now, just a quick little thing I want you to think about. We often say things like, well, on Shavuot at Mount Sinai, this happened, but at Pentecost, you know, we talk about things like that. Well, in the Old Testament, it was this, but in the New Testament, like, like, eh, that stuff is old and wasn't as great as the stuff we have. Well, tell that to the people that were at Mount Sinai. Tell it to the people that actually heard God speak. Here's the thing. At Mount Sinai, who spoke Hebrew at Mount Sinai? Maybe nobody except God. What languages were represented? 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 Whatever. (laughs) At Mount Sinai. 
the sages tell us 70 in all, all the nations. But think about literally, literally you, had, you had Canaanites, you had Hebrews, you had, Jeb, you had all the ites, right, from Canaan that were slaves. You had all these people. What language does God speak at Sinai? Anyone he wants? All of them. The answer is all of them. God, think, think about this. Not something that's explicit in, the, in the, the passage in Exodus, but that the rabbis talk about a lot. The sages talk about a lot. This idea that God speaks from the mountain. Great. Miraculous in and of itself, right? That the creator of the universe would speak to a group of people. But what's even more miraculous is that you'll have a whole group of people that each hear in their own language at Mount Sinai. It's the part we miss. What does the voice of God sound like? It sounds like whatever you are able to understand. Language. Not only language. I'm not saying that God's voice sounds Spanish to a Spanish person and English American to an I'm not only saying that, German to a German person. I'm saying in every way, God's voice sounds like what you are able to understand. It means where you are in your season in life. It means based on your experiences and your background, your learning, your education, your lack of education, whatever it may be. God's voice sounds to you like what you were able to understand. So it says the Ruach came and began to speak, and they began to speak in other tongues. Now, this I don't want it to hurt your feelings, but tongues there is languages. It's not... It's not, yeah, it's not Atai, Yutai, Yutamatai. It's not, you know, what a Hyundai should have been a Hyundai. I'm not making fun of speaking in tongues. I'm making fun of what we've done to speaking in tongues, the idea of speaking in tongues. I believe there is, I believe there is a gift of a heavenly language. I believe that. This is not that. This is languages. Somebody who spoke Hebrew all of a sudden knew how to speak perfect Greek. Somebody who spoke, spoke Parthian understood how to speak whatever, okay? So, verse 5. Now, the Jewish people were staying in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Devout men. Not those scandalous Jews. Devout men, Acts calls them. And verse 6. And when the sound came, the crowd gathered together. So the crowd heard the sound. What happens in Shavuot in Sinai? The stuff and the crowd comes closer, right? They, want, they, they come closer, even though they're scared. And, the, and they, they gather together. It says they were bewildered because each was what? Hearing in their own language. So we get all hyped up about, well, not all of us. Pentecostals, get, I'm just going to call them out by name. Pentecostals, get, love them to death, get all hyped up about people speaking in tongues based on Acts 2. Right? Based on Acts, Acts chapter 2. About people speaking in tongues. If you don't speak in tongues, you're not going to heaven based on some beliefs. But for me, the big, bigger miracle, the bigger takeaway here is that it's not just that the disciples were able to speak. It's that everybody there was able to hear in their own language. 
So let me ask you this then. Since that's a part of the verse we've never really taken apart in most of our Pentecostal circles, were the disciples even speaking in other tongues or were they speaking Hebrew and people just heard in their language? There's ways to look at it both ways. What I'm trying to do is expand our understanding of what's going on because I think it's important that we not just stay locked into one super narrow understanding. Verse 7, and they were amazed and astonished saying, all who are speaking, aren't they Galileans? Fishermen? How is it that we each hear in our own birth language? See, here it is again. The hearing part is the miracle. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those living in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, uh, Phrygia, uh, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya towards Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jewish and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring in our own tongues the mighty deeds of God. The focus through all, all of chapter 2 of Acts is on the miracle of the hearing, not the miracle of the speaking. We read one verse where it says that they begin to speak with other languages, other tongues. We read three more verses that said people were going, we can hear in our own language. Again, not saying that tongues is not a thing. I'm saying we have to balance it with we want to speak in tongues. We want the gift. We want to be able to do that. We want, to, we, we want the gift of the Spirit to be able to speak in tongues. Man, what if we could speak in different languages? Hey, what about you hearing? How about we, I think this ratio is about right. One verse speaking to three verses hearing. I think that's a pretty good ratio we should adopt. Speak about one third of the time that you hear, that you listen. I think it's it's wise. We should speak less and hear more and listen more. So, of course, it goes on to talk about the uh, others are poking fun and saying they're, they're full of new wine. But Peter, Kepha, uh, this is verse 14, raised his voice and he said, For Judeans and all who are staying in Jerusalem, that uh, pay attention to my words. He said, These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. It's still early morning. Obviously, they weren't from South Louisiana. Um, but <laughs> that's, uh, I can say that because I are one. Um, and then he talks about what was given through the prophet Joel, right? In the last days, pour out my ruach on all flesh. Here's what's interesting is that to Peter, these were the last days. 2,000 years ago. Peter said, this is it. This is the end. This is what Joel talked about in the last days. The whole thing's about to wrap up, guys. And so he preaches this beautiful, amazing salvation message. And he basically says, the Messiah that you guys all killed. It's awesome. But in Peter's mind, these were the last days. You know who else's mind it was the last days? Paul. Paul thought it was the last days. 2,000 years ago. So what does that tell us? When people around you start running around going, it must be the end, it must be the end. Go, yep, it probably is the end to a new beginning because this is what history does. It continues to recycle. It continues to cycle over and over and over. One word and then we'll be be done about the spirit. I've said this before, but I know it's hard for people to get their mind around. um, So I want to just mention it again. For me, the name 
and the Spirit have become synonymous. Now, I know that from a Trinitarian, if you come from a Trinitarian background, this is going to sound really weird and, and not right. Are you saying the Holy Spirit's not a person of the Trinity? I'm not getting into that today because we don't have enough time or wine to get into that discussion. In really broad concepts, when we think about someone's name and we think about who they are, right? We think about their aura, their essence, whatever you want to say. When we talk about someone's presence, don't we think about it a lot in the same ways? Their name embodies who they are. You think about their personality and their sense of humor and their wittiness and their, you know, whatever. The sound of their laugh and the, you know, you you think about all these things. When you think about somebody, when you hear their name. When their presence is there, what is their presence? What is someone's presence? It's the expression of all that stuff, right? You You can tell when somebody walks into a room if you know them well enough. You can tell when somebody is there, atmospheres change based on whose presence is there. Well, what is presence? Presence is just the expression of everything that the name is. Does that make sense at all? Am I, am I confusing you? They're two different sides of the same coin. So when we wear it, when God gives the people his name at Sinai in Shavuot originally, God is giving to them the instructions on how to be who he is, be in his likeness, live by his essence. When God gives Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, his presence, Shkinah, at the day of, on, in Acts 2, he's giving them his, I'm going to say essence again, because I don't know what other word to use, his essence. In other words, he was teaching Israel how to live by the way he wanted them to live. In Acts 2, he's doing the same thing. Maybe to another level, sure. But it's all, the the Spirit is not something different than the Torah. Some, Some still have this idea that, well, like, like, well, Heather and I will talk to people, and people will say, like, I found out Christmas was pagan, and what, you know, whatever. And they go on the whole Christmas rant and stuff. And, and we'll talk, and, and, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And so we'll talk, and they're, and they're just like, I can't believe, no, not everybody knows this. You know, Christians, what are we doing, and blah, 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 blah. And, and we had this conversation a couple months ago with someone, and, and, um, and I said, well, you know, that's why we don't eat pork and shellfish and all that. And immediately the lady went, oh, well, I haven't been convicted of that. So, so you, you, you don't want to celebrate Christmas because of the stuff you've learned, but, you're, but the commandment not to sell, the, the feasts and commandments and the, the dietary commandments are right next to each other in Scripture, but that doesn't matter. You have to be convicted first. Right. Here's just another throwaway question. Um, is there such a thing as conviction in the Bible? Is that a Baptist thing? I don't know. No, I'm joking. So this, this idea about, um, about the Spirit, the Torah, and the Spirit, they are not separate things. The Spirit won't allow you to do something that's forbidden in the Torah. Does, it doesn't work that way. Oh, but the Spirit showed me. No. 
That's gas. I'm sorry. If it says it in the Torah, the Spirit's not going to speak against that. If something is speaking against that, it's not the Spirit. Because they are, they are two expressions of God working together to bring about the same result. And that result is that we bear God's image in this world. That's the same result that we bear God's image. That's what it is. And by the way, Jews throughout history have been filled with the Spirit. So this is God working throughout history and one continuous line so that we bear His image in our last days. Amen. All right, well, thank you guys again for joining us uh, on live stream. Uh, I went a little longer than I was supposed to, sorry. Um, and uh, we, uh, we've got stuff to eat. And so I hope you have a wonderful rest of Shavuot. Uh, Shavuot Sameach to you guys. Father, we bless you and thank you for our online family um, that has been with us during this time. Thank you for uh, their commitment and their, uh, their love towards us and our family. And we thank you, Father, and pray that you bless the rest of their Shavuot, whether they're celebrating together with family, with friends, uh, maybe even alone today. I pray you comfort and, and strengthen them uh, as we all look to, uh, to bear your image better in our last days in our world. We thank you, Father, for all these blessings through Yeshua, our beloved Messiah. Amen and amen. Amen. amen.